0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
1: Coindesk is calling on visionaries in the digital economy to present at our newest event, Ideas. Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. Ideas is the place for you to present your marketing opportunity in front of leading investors poised to help you get your idea off the ground. Apply today to become a presenter at Ideas 2022 by Coindesk. Visit Coindesk.com forward slash ideas for more information. This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near.
2: Money is changing. So, where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast, as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
3: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey coming to you again from Neocon. That's why Sheila and I are actually wearing the same clothes, not because we don't have a limited wardrobe. But we're here at Neocon, second time. This week we're doing a follow-up from what we discussed the previous week. Same time, and that is around uh, climate change, around sustainability, and, and blockchain solutions for them. Last week we talked about data and the the value of potential blockchain solutions for improving the integrity of data in carbon credits and the like. Today we're actually talking about the trading of those carbon credits, and so we're talking about like essentially the stack, right? The data layer and now the trading layer. And for that we'll be talking to Robert Schmidt, who is a COO and co-founder of Tucan, and Phil Vogel, who is the uh, Chief Blockchain Officer and Co-Founder of Flow Carbon. Uh, Sheila, of course, Hello, here again, hello. hello again. Here I am. Yeah, yes. Yeah. We get well, to do it twice. I love
1: this. Yeah, I love yeah. that we're doing it twice. I also love that this episode will release during Climate Week in New York, which is pretty yep. exciting, around the UN General Assembly. So uh, we thought it was just a really important follow on to have this conversation, and lucky enough to have these two gentlemen that are here with us. Yeah. So let us begin.
3: First
2: off, just tell us what you're all about. Like, Give us a lowdown on Toucan, uh, Robert. So token, we tokenize carbon credits. So we've built a bridge where we have tokenized around 22 million tons of uh, credits from the Vera registry primarily, and we are you know built an ecosystem of applications on top of that as well, uh, or encourage an ecosystem. So we have about 120 projects building with tokenized carbon and are really excited about how we can reimagine money and make it more regenerative and uh, embed carbon and sustainability into the fabric of commerce. Okay,
3: and, and Phil, the you know, flow, flow Carbon.
4: Yeah, so Flow Carbon is working on a bunch of different scaling solutions for the voluntary carbon market. We're really focused on what can we do to help capital flow into this market. So from a bunch of different things that we're doing, one is similar to Toucan, we're helping to bring tokenized credits that are already existing credits from the registries like Vera, on chain, we're helping to take new credits that are being created as Web3 native credits and helping them to find a home, helping them to find a market, helping them to find liquidity. And we're also bringing structured uh, financial products to the voluntary carbon market. So we're actually, we just launched a pool, it's a first pilot pool where we took a forward contract we brought that forward contract for carbon on chain, so this is for credits that have not yet been produced, but are going to be produced in the future. We then took that, put it into a product that has a senior and a junior tranche to it. So the senior tranche acts like debt, it's paid a fixed rate of return. The junior essentially sits in front of that, gets takes the first losses, but has variable upside and downside. So it basically has an equity like position.
1: And so you're both part of this kind of broader movement that's called ReFi. So maybe kind of position that contextually for us, maybe starting with you. Like just talk to us about how does that fit into the broader context ecosystem of Web3 as a general matter.
2: So I, I see Web3, like we've built a lot of these like new money systems, and we believe ReFi represents uh, a movement to make that money system regenerative by design so that you can embed planet positive action or p- actions that regenerate the planet and people into the fabric of the economic system. And so that's really what we see refi being all about. And with carbon assets and carbon credits is certainly you know, one mechanism to, to fund climate action. And for example, if you're embedding carbon credits into, let's say, a stable coin, you can make that stable coin. If you're using that stable coin and the economy is built on that, but that will you know create funding for carbon credits and carbon credit projects that will then, for example, like plant trees and mangroves and capture carbon and things like that. So I think that's just one example of it. We see just loads of applications. There's a lot of creativity and ways we can kind of make this happen. And we're just really excited about kind of helping accelerate that in terms of climate action, Uh, but also super excited about things being done in like UBI and funding public goods and things like that as well.
4: Yeah, just following on to that, carbon is just one part of the refi ecosystem. The refi ecosystem is much bigger than just carbon, right? Carbon gets a lot of airtime and attention because we all sort of believe that it is something that we can do right now and we can have an immediate impact on creating a better planet and creating financial systems that are more regenerative. But there's a huge other swatch of protocols and projects that are being built in the space right now that are really important and really interesting to look at.
3: Okay, but we are talking about carbon right now. So let's just I'm going to have to pick up on on a, a line that we're hearing quite a bit about carbon credits generally, right? That they aren't to be trusted necessarily because the quality of the data underneath them is, is often so variable and unstandardized. And we know certainly from our conversation last week, uh, or yesterday, but last week effectively, uh, Sheila, that, um, you know, that there are efforts within the blockchain community to address that. But I mean, Phil specifically. I mean, I saw this article in Vox about you guys, you know, flu carbon, saying, look, you know, all, if all you're doing is is enabling speculation and trading in these sort of fundamentally flawed data measurements, what good are you doing, right? What was what your answer to that take that that really ultimately you're just enabling a speculative environment that's not actually incentivizing actual carbon reduction?
4: Yeah, so you have to go back a couple decades to understand how this market has evolved, right? And this market has gotten better and better, and it started from a place where people were really focused on creating climate action and creating this ability to trade carbon. I emit carbon, someone else sequesters or prevents carbon from being released, and we can trade it. And so methodologies had to be come up with. And so over the course of the last 20 years, these methodologies have gotten substantially better. So there are a lot of credits, that some of which still exist, and some of them are out there, some of them are even on Web3 that were created 10 years ago using a methodology that has since been debunked. That is since like, no, the science has moved on from there. That's not actually a good way to to measure carbon credit. And so over time, these methodologies have gotten better and better. And so what is produced today as a carbon credit is very different than what was produced 10 or 15 years ago as a carbon credit. So there is a lot of that that just is still in the legacy system that needs to be flushed out, And which is why there's a lot of research that goes into what can be used as a carbon credit and all the different kinds of carbon credits. But what we're seeing today is that the methodology are getting better and the data storage is getting better. One of the reasons that we're so excited about the Web3 stack that's being built in the refi ecosystem and in the carbon ecosystem is that it actually creates the ability to look at the data in real time and to see that data being posted multiple times a year. Right now when a carbon credit is created, usually that data is given in a static PDF or Excel format generally speaking once a year sometimes every other year but not as frequently as when you're using satellite imagery IOT devices and additional data sources that are actually posting that data in an immutable way multiple times a year so the system is getting better and better
1: so are those credits you talked about that are dependent on dated methodologies are those on chain are those part of your ecosystem or are you differentiating between kind of these bad methodology you know credits and kind of the
4: newer ones yeah so one of the things that I think both of us are doing is we're building infrastructure. Right. This is a market that gets its validity from the purchasers of carbon credits. The corporates who buy the carbon credits that are willing to spend money on carbon credits are the ones who actually give this market legitimacy. And so what we're doing is building infrastructure that will allow for multiple different kinds of credits to find homes and price discovery so that people can actually see and have transparency around the information about what backs up the carbon credit so that they can make decisions themselves and that the market can then decide. Remember, this is the refi market, right? We're trying to create regenerative finance. How do we use the capitalist system that we're in Right to actually cause regeneration of the planet. And that has to come from market-based demand. So that right now, you have a tremendous number of large corporates who do a ton of work. In fact, it's um, a joke that I sometimes make. I'm not sure exactly how true it is, but the staff at Microsoft that actually looks at sustainability and buying of carbon credits is bigger than the staff at the largest issuer of carbon credits, right? So they do a ton of work to validate carbon credits. That information can be shared on Web3. You can create bundle contracts that basically say this is the Microsoft standard, this is the carrying standard, this is the Netflix standard. You can go to these corporates who do a lot of work and have a lot of reputation at play in this and let them be the definers of what's a good credit. And then when you have that set out, then others can follow suit. And so you start to see stratifications in the market, not just in the types of credits, removal credits versus sequ- sequestration credits versus um, blue credits, right? Those are different like segments of the market that exist, but also the depth of research that can go in beyond that to look at the individual credits and find out what the quality of that credit is.
3: So something this is really interesting, this sort of idea that, you know, we can use Web3 data to open up, Web3 systems to open up the data and sort of make these systems sort of more broad. But, you know, Robert, you could perhaps address here as well, though, what, what needs to be done perhaps as much as... Phil is telling us that yes, the methodologies have improved over 10 years. There's still a lot more improvement that could go, and certainly in terms of the real-time reporting, right? We still have this, this lag in this data. What is it that could be done to maybe incentivize, uh, through through a sort of a trading environment, the capacity for the issuers of these things to improve their methodology?
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I, uh, I agree with all the points that, that Phil mentioned, and just wanted to kind of add on top of that and to your question that you have, for example, credit ratings, I think is a, is a really good kind of mechanism for this. You can append data about credit ratings, so we have these like, third parties that do a really thorough analysis of the credit. They look at all the different risks, they do a really deep due diligence, and then they share that. And then you can append that to the credits. And I think this idea of appending data to the carbon credits works really well in Web3. You can a- attach it to like data layers, uh, for example, kind of what Filecoin Green is working on and really integrate these products very closely and so that's you know something we're working on and no others are working on as well and I think you will have you know, a credit with much more rich data. So you will have data about the credit rating. You can have data about real-time verification from like satellites, from IoT devices, things like that. And then all of this data can uh, be like, read by smart contracts and can determine, for example, where these credits can trade and which markets they can go into. So you can create pools that have a requirement that it needs to have a certain types of data, certain qualifications to be able to be accessed and what we're seeing from a demand perspective is that most corporates really want this type of like assurance and this type of data backing the credits and just want you know somewhere you know where they can trust that the credits are good and we see most of the demand for carbon credits is for like higher quality credits I mean I would say the on-chain market is very young. I mean it, it started, you know, quite soon and I think we're seeing like a push from all actors in the space to really move towards this like really high integrity, high quality credits.
3: And and, and does that mean a push towards on-chain? I mean you're actually getting these large corporates that have got committed cash, you know, obligations toward ESG starting to demand you know, some sort of on-chain verification of the quality of the data or is that still to come?
2: I, I think we see a lot of corporates being very interested in the space from the perspective of it making their life a lot simpler because you have a very transparent system. It's much easier to access the credits. You also have a lot of benefits in terms of uh, like it's just like a better system to access and buy these credits, and a more like liquid financial market. And so I think it's a step in the maturity of the market, and it's, just, it, it's a you know progress that we see a lot of corporates being interested in. There's still a lot of open questions about legitimacy and so forth, but definitely we're seeing, a lot, especially a lot of these large corporates that have these big teams. Like almost all of them are actively looking at this because like the trading volumes on chain, I mean, they've been like larger than off chain, and like. It's just at this point is a pretty significant market and I I think it's becoming closer and closer to reality that this will be kind of where corporates will, you know, access their demand.
0: Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3 featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host Sheila Warren, Aves Stanikulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. Near is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps designed by developers for developers. Over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces and play to earn games or looking to migrate your project from Web2, NEAR makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. NEAR offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting NEAR at NEAR.org. That's N E A R.org.
4: Yeah, so. Corporate demand for carbon credits is increasing across the board, and it's becoming, its right now, it's basically held inside of corporates that have actual teams dedicated to this. In order for this to be scalable, that has to move from uh, these sustainability teams that are focused on this, basically into the CFO's office. This has becomes an expense that the company has to bear, and it should be really easy for them to bear it. It shouldn't be complicated. They shouldn't need more staff. So they are looking at these solutions as ways to make that faster. On top of which, If anyone who's ever bought a carbon credit off chain before, it is an insanely difficult process. You are navigating a web of brokers and middlemen trying to find the project developers themselves. You then have to try and you, generally speaking, cannot custody the carbon credit yourself. It's very difficult to get an account at one of the registries. And even if you do have an account at one of the registries and you find someone to sell you a carbon credit, you're now transacting on individual contracts, right? Everyone has their own contracts. There's no standardization of contracts. There's no clearinghouse in this industry, which means that in order for us to transact, you and I want to buy and sell credits. You agree to sell me credits. I send to give you cash. Who goes first, right? And so there's trust that's necessary in this market. And it takes weeks, if not months, to complete a trade for carbon credits. And so bringing that on chain, leapfrogs the need for a clearinghouse because the ledger just solves that problem for you. It solves the trust problem, it solves the speed problem, it solves the settlement problem. No longer will you need custom paperwork, no longer will someone have to go first, and no longer will you have to wait weeks to get your carbon credits.
1: Okay, so I love all of this. We talked last, our last episode actually, a little bit about the role of regulation and policy, right? So you're seeing movement towards climate disclosures, and that's often a very vague term. What does that really mean? Uh, we've argued at the crypto council some of that if it's performative is not valuable you know but do you see a role for regulation or for required mandatory disclosures around things that whether that involves the data layer whether it involves your offsets or like, things like this like how do you see regulation if at all playing into this sector
4: so one of the really nice things about environmental assets is that there has been very light regulation on them intentionally because it's the goal of the government is to scale this market as fast as possible to not stymie it Um, But where we do see regulation that's really intelligent coming into this market is around disclosures of offsetting. If you as a corporate, or frankly even as an individual, wanna make an offsetting claim, you should have to do so publicly. You should have to disclose what it is that you're using to make that offsetting claim, where you got them from, and uh, when you retired the credits. That is something that basically you get totally for free in a Web3 context, right? It's really easy to do that. Everything is basically public. You can see exactly what credits there are. But there are companies today who make claims and you have no idea what kind of credits they're using. So even this idea of like credit quality and who should be doing that, where does all of this ESG stuff come from, right? It comes from investor pressure. It comes from customer pressure. And so if that's going to continue, you have to give that information to the customers and the investors to see what kind of offsets the corporates are using.
3: So Robert, though, like maybe just another way of looking at the regulation question would just be from the classic, what does the SEC think? of all this, right? And, and so clearly both of you are talking about using this sort of technology to reach into the average joe to have them participate in these markets and feel a tangible connection to that. But if we've got the same old problems of like, you know, having a file, you know, with the SEC or whether or not, you know, these token projects can only be for accredited investors, you know, we end up in these siloed limited adoption type of stories. Where does it fit, fit for you where you're actually taking, you know, existing off-chain credits and putting them into this investment? environment, do you have challenges around regulation or, or is in fact something that you know is actually more easily accessed by, by the average investor?
2: So we we're based in, in Switzerland, so we're a Swiss association, so we've taken that path. I think you might be more crypto and sort of SEC one specifically, but we've gotten a fair bit of like regulatory clarity on, on this and it hasn't been a concern for us you know moving forward in, in the near term. I would say I think there's an angle in terms of regulation in this space, which is that we're operating in a voluntary market currently. There's like the integrity of these credits and the trust in these standards is really important for the value of the credits. So it's a highly self-regulated market, in a sense, because you have these standards that are doing a lot of work to really regulate how their credits can be used. And so I think there is, you know, it's not a government regulatory body that that dictates these credits, but the standards themselves do play a pretty important regulatory role. And also other kind of bodies like uh, AITA and ACROA, et cetera, um, which verify various types of credits and uh, these uh, different industry groups that set the standards. Um, I think that becomes the policy in the market. And so I think we're, in general, more concerned with those actors, as opposed to kind of SEC, et cetera, Mm -hmm. currently. okay. Uh,
3: Now, Phil, actually, I want to it's a bit of a digression, but I, I think it's important for our listeners and, and viewers to clear up some confusion. You're with Flow Carbon, which is a project that was launched by Adam Newman, formerly of WeWork, famously so, a year or so ago. But he's just recently relaunched something else called Flow, which of course confuses everybody with the NFT blockchain called Flow and a preceding proof of work blockchain that not many people heard about, also called FLO Flow. Can you, like, clarify at least the first two parts of that? Is this how is this, or is it not related to, to Flow, the new thing that A16Z is investing in, and are you connected in any way? No, I they're, mean,
4: they're I, totally separate companies. They're, right. they're completely independent from each other. The founding story of Flow Carbon was that Adam and Rebecca had gotten very involved in philo- philanthropy around preserving forests, and they sort of got, went down the reeds of that rabbit hole, saying, okay, no, there are carbon credits here, and there should be a business here. There should be something here that's looking to scale this market, and Caroline, Dana, and myself were brought in then to sort of build that business
3: and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to answer this question, I'm going to throw it to you anyway. Like I said, famously, he's all, some would say also infamously connected with WeWork. I mean, h- how are you dealing with that, right? I mean, he, he is such a prominent figure right now and one who he hasn't always gotten great press. There's a documentary about this, you're all aware of that. Like, how does that feed into your ability to educate people about, you know, what you're doing?
4: Yeah, so it actually has brought, I would say, more eyeballs onto this space than ever would have been brought if there was no involvement whatsoever. And so that's a good thing. There's obviously the downside of that. We become clickbait. Anytime someone wants to just write an article about Adam Newman, it's really easy to like be like, oh, Flow Carbon didn't release a token today. Adam Newman's crypto project is not doing well. Right? That clickbait is not great. But on the other hand, the articles being written where people are actually asking questions and the ability to have conversations with serious journalists who want to dig in and actually understand what we're doing is unprecedented. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, certainly this
1: is one of the most timely topics of our time, and you're seeing broad spread awareness, widespread awareness, I would say, uh, we talked about the John Oliver segment you know, last week, that are just, there's a lot of potential in this market, but it's a currently flawed market. And so how do you differentiate? How do you know as a consumer? Because I think so many of us you know, are just trying to do the right thing. And so you buy your plane ticket, you click on the thing that says, now do your offset. You have no, to your point, zero visibility into, is that meaningful? Is it not? Is it feels very performative? and in that, not at all satisfying. And I think what people want to know is that what they're doing is actually making a difference. Because I think those of us who care about this space, which is obviously everyone here, and I would say the majority of people in the blockchain space and Web3, you know, really are really understand the acute time pressure that we're under for solving some of these problems. We don't have a lot of time. So engaging in experimentation with methods that are debunked or don't work is really not in anyone's interest. So, I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate the chance for us to help get the message out about this as well. And I guess the question I would have is, you know, how do you think about engagement with folks that just don't care? You know, does the kind of uh, economics underlying this bring in those folks? Is it designed to do so? Or are you kind of like, look, no, we're here for people that actually do care about this and want to you know, have a different model. Like, how do you think about that?
4: Yeah. So everything that we've sort of been doing is focused on building an institutional grade market because the players in this market are corporates and also need to be the investor class, right? The people who are going to fund project development for the long haul. It's nice, and we think it's really important to be open up the access to this market to anyone who wants to participate in it so that people who want to spend their dollars on having real impact or use their investment dollars on real impact can do that. We really think that's super important, but the bulk of this market is still going to remain institutional. And so the institutions have an, a responsibility to do the diligence, do the research, and to help make that market more open and accessible to the people who can't spend as much money and time. So, for example, when you, we talk about like the Microsoft standard for offsetting, right? The idea that that can be used very, very easily by anyone else who can't afford to hire a sustainability team is super important. The same thing with caring, and they're doing that at sort of the fashion industry level. They're out there creating, like thinking about standards and thinking about ways to offset that they can then push out to smaller luxury houses who wanna offset, but can't afford to hire a team to do it.
2: Yeah, I would just add on to that point. I think like really this question of integrity of the credits and like is your kind of climate action really happening i think like sunlight is like the best disinfectant and i think here the good thing with these on-chain systems is that it's fully transparent so when you press the button when you check out on a flight like you don't know what's happening in the background it's it's kind of something they're probably you know buying it in bulk somewhere you don't know what types of credit it is um, but if you have that kind of automated on-chain like you can directly get you know your you know polyscan link or whatever that that shows exactly what happened. You can like clearly trace whatever exactly the action you're taking. And I think that also that transparency forces you know better activities. We've seen a lot of critique of on-chain carbon uh, for certain you know questions of quality and things like that. But really the market is very similar to the off-chain one but just the on-chain market is fully transparent. So then it's open for journalists for everyone to kind of dig into it to analyze the data and produce critique and i think that's also what's pushing the entire space to be much more focused on integrity because we have to be because it's well i mean we want to create quality action and if it's all in public you know we have to stand by our words and everything we do is can be like just analyzed by everyone so i think that really is a very valuable forcing function and i think it's also why i think this market will be where a lot of high integrity carbon lives and where if you want to show high integrity climate action, you want to do it on chain because that's the best place to do it because it's all transparent, it's all trustless, it's all good.
3: But a lot of that sort of broad based mainstream criticism of, of blockchain carbon is built around the story that is, is often told around Bitcoin, of course, and proof of work and its energy consumption and there's all sorts of ways to discuss and debate that. We've talked about it on our show a lot. You know, and that sort of narrative that was out there, for example, around NFTs that scared off a lot of people from getting involved because, you know, mint one NFT and you're killing half a forest or whatever was really, I suppose, associated with Ethereum's proof of work uh, status, which, of course, in a matter of days, in fact, when we're live, as long as everything goes to plan, when you're hearing this, folks, it actually will have merged and it will be, in fact, an entirely different proof of stake blockchain. I wonder how how important that is for this public conversation. Like, you know, the capacity to sort of debunk that. And like, do you feel as if a shift, a momentous shift like that is going to be useful in
2: how the conversation transpires with the general public and with with the media? Absolutely. I think this narrative of, you know, crypto being bad for the planet, I think that's something which, you know, is quite damaging for the space in in general. And I think uh, regenerative finance and, and moving carbon on chain I think is an opportunity for the space to really showcase the utility of the infrastructure, the utility of everything we built, and to show we can use these tools to create real-world impact and do something positive for the climate. We're built on on Polygon, which is uh, like carbon negative or carbon neutral. Um, also on cello, same same situation. Uh, so these are proof-of-stake chains have very limited, you know, carbon footprint. And so I think you know that combination with these tools actually being used to, to really accelerate climate action, I think can really change the narrative that this you know, financial system we're building now, this can be by far you know, the least you know, pollutive financial system that we've ever seen. But beyond that, also one that significantly benefits the planet in a way that we've never seen before. So I think that's really an inspiring story. And like when we talk about this and we you know talk about this to people in the ecosystem, I think it's something which a lot of people can really get behind. And so I think I think it, that's one of the reasons why you know we're hopeful that the entire Web3 ecosystem will start adopting this, will start integrating these assets, um, so that their protocols can you know by default be climate positive, because that's really how we can you know turn this entire narrative around and just like flip it all on its head. And I think that's what we should do, and we're really excited about yeah. you know making that happen. Phil, you want a, a final word on this? Yeah,
4: unfortunately, the way in which offsetting on-chain in a proof-of-work context got talked about created this very bad narrative where it's like, oh, if I go and mint an NFT, I am going to cause more carbon to be released into the atmosphere. That's not actually how blockchains work, right? The block size is fixed, right? And the number of validators and miners sitting there is, generally speaking, not going to increase because you bought one more NFT, or even if you bought a thousand more NFTs, it's not going to change. And so the footprint of the network is not going to change based off of transactions. What happened was, is that because the miners weren't offsetting, Right, The narrative came to, oh, the users of the blockchain should offset their portion. And the best way that we had to calculate their portion was to say total footprint divided by numbers of transactions times the number of transactions that you did. And so that was the best way that we can for you as a user to say, I want to have an impact and make sure that my usage of this network is carbon free. right? But at the same time, it then scared a lot of people off because they were like, well, I don't want to use it at all if it's going to have this footprint. Hopefully with the merge, that narrative entirely goes away. And if you actually look at most l1 and l2 blockchains today they're all making an effort to be carbon neutral the the fact that they're doing that is amazing they're saying we actually want to be beyond that we want to be carbon negative blockchains
3: but, but i mean look I mean, isn't though i get the idea that there's a confusion about who's actually consuming that energy and where that responsibility lies but like as a consumer of anything the the classic line will i boycott like the other day i i was driving past looking for a, a gas station to fill up my car and i went past a luke oil and I get the idea that like this is a franchisee, it's an American who's got his own business, and I wouldn't necessarily want to hurt that, but like. I'm not going to go fill up my car at a a place that's got a Russian-owned gas station name on it because I don't want to support that, right? So I still feel that there it it is still a really relevant question for consumers to be able to vote with their pocketbooks. They just need to be better informed, right? 100%.
4: I mean, we think that that's actually where most of the pressure is going to continue to be placed on corporations to offset and to calculate their emissions and to find ways more important than offsetting, right? we spent this entire time talking about carbon credits and offsetting. The most important thing is reduction. Right. What we really want everyone to do is to reduce their footprint. Right. So by moving away. So like, let's say that Ethereum was like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to stay proof of work, but we're just going to offset our entire footprint. That's actually not what we want. We want the move to proof of stake because it moves away from those emissions and it basically cuts down the amount of carbon we're releasing into the atmosphere that we have to find someplace else to offset. Right. That's what we want corporations to do is to reduce the emissions in their infrastructure and in their day to day operations and then offset the balance. Right. And it's going to take decades to decarbonize most corporations. Right. And that's yeah. it, it, it's, it's hard work. They have to replace fleets of trucks. They have to replace industrial facilities. They have to re- replace manufacturing plants. Right. That's all going to happen in time and where that's the encouragement. And part of the reason why a carbon credit is helpful is it puts a price on what it costs to not do that. And that's why it's important to open this market up and to have more participants in this market, one, demanding quality, and two, demanding price and price transparency.
3: Yeah. Well, we actually get reminded relentlessly of how urgent this is, right? And in fact, just to give you a bit of uh, anecdotal evidence of this, the Neocon event that we're at at the moment was almost called off uh, this morning because of a torrential hurricane-like you know, almost collapsed in the roof with so much rain that it just almost destroyed everything. You know, all of this is obviously integrally connected to to climate change and it's happening faster than than I think any of us expected. So, you know, whatever it is, that in this ecosystem can accelerate and incentivize that acceleration, I think is really important. So like, you know, good luck to you guys. You got challenges ahead of you. Phil Vogel and and Robert Schmidt, great to have you on board And, and Sheila, like was fun to be able to do two, not one, but two Money Reimagined episodes here at Neocon. That's all we have time for for now, everybody. Come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now.